Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would review a malpractice case, a real malpractice case in which a therapist was sued successfully, so to speak, and I want to provide the circumstances and where this counselor went wrong and how we all can avoid things like this. And for those of you who are not therapists, you can have some good old-fashioned schadenfreude as you listen to the suffering of another human being, and it just makes you feel good inside. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This deep dive sort of episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, I'll just put yet in there, you should be soon. This episode is going to end before the content begins if you're not a patron. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patron gets Patrons get access to all premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page, but mostly on their phones. When you become a patron, I'll send you the access information and know that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. We love you very much. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. Super dig it. This is a case that was given to me by my malpractice insurance. They uh, sent uh, a, they, you know, they, they sometimes send me a newsletter and it'll have some case in there that describes where a therapist was sued. They are trying to stop us all from engaging in risky behavior, which means that they have to shell out a lot of money, which presumably means they have to uh, lose profits or raise prices or something. So they really just want – the best case scenario is we all pay a fee for malpractice and none of us get sued, and so they never have to engage in uh, spending money for malpractice ever. So this is, a, I guess, a scare tactic of some kind. And so – um I thought I would uh, summarize it and paraphrase it because they often put it in kind of legal language that doesn't always sound so great. So here we go. All right. So we start with a five-year-old female child. Okay. Five-year-old female child. So a five-year-old little girl. Her parents are in the process of divorcing. So five-year-old girl. Her heterosexual parents are in the process of divorcing. While in court for the divorce, the father made allegations that his daughter, the five-year-old child, had been sexually abused by the mother's 17-year-old son. That boy was from a previous relationship that the mother was in. Okay, so if I had a genogram or a you know family tree on the board, I would show you this, but you have to visualize it in your head. So you have a you have a, a woman who gets married. She has a son. She gets divorced. She gets remarried to this guy. They have a five-year-old daughter together. So, so the family is mother, father, and these two people have a biological child, a five-year-old daughter. And they also have uh, – the father has a stepson, 17. This is the mother's uh, biological child. Okay. So the father is accusing his stepson of abusing – his daughter, his five-year-old daughter. So he's accusing his 17-year-old stepson of abusing his five-year-old daughter. And I just want to tell everyone this sort of thing happens all the time. Uh, I mean, in terms of sexual abuse, obviously, frequently happens, which is unfortunate. But it's a very frequent occurrence that during a divorce custody battle, particularly if it's involving the court, that various different questionable allegations will be suddenly uh, brought up. And this is just cliche for a, uh, for a parent, for a divorcing spouse to say, you know, the father is basically saying to, you know, he presumably these people hate each other because divorcing people, particularly if they're in the court, particularly if they have lawyers often hate each other. And so the father is saying to the mother, your dirty stepson has been abusing my sweet little five-year-old daughter. And basically, the reason why divorcing or custody battle people will do this 
is because the father is basically trying to get sole custody or primary custody of the five-year-old daughter. If he can prove that the 17-year-old has been sexually abusing the five-year-old daughter, then that, one, makes the mother look bad, at least in the father's mind, that's what he thinks will happen. And it also makes it so that the mother has to make a, a literal Sophie's choice because in order for her to pursue custody of the five-year-old, she basically has to give up custody of the 17-year-old. So the mother has to make this choice if the judge believes that the 17-year-old has been abusing the five-year-old. So the father bringing this up really uh, is a potential strategic move. Now, it could actually be true, too. We don't want to just discount this just because it's a custody battle that the accusation is automatically false. It's, you know, it, it could be true. But I'm telling you, whenever these sorts of allegations just suddenly arise during a custody battle, I would say 95% of the time, if not more, it's it's a dubious lie. And it's really just terrible and an indication of just how crazy people get during a divorce. And another reason why during a divorce, people should seek collaborative divorce, which is a, a system of uh, providing collaboration so you can avoid the kind of mudslinging that happens or just decide you're going to divorce amicably and work together instead of being each other's enemy because uh, people always lose in this situation. And in this case, pretty much everyone loses. So, all right. So again, the father is accusing the stepson of abusing his daughter and the father wants primary custody. And again, he accuses the mother of being a bad mother for allowing her son to sexually abuse the daughter. Plus, if the son is a sexual predator, the judge won't allow the daughter to stay with the mother because the stepson is there, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So the judge, upon hearing this, consequently ordered counseling for the daughter. The judge is like, okay, the father is saying the stepson has been abusing the daughter, and the mother is presumably saying that's ridiculous, and so the judge is like, okay, well, how about you send the five-year-old to counseling? All right, let me just sort of complain about the judicial system, and this is another reason why if you're divorcing and you're angry at each other, you really want to avoid the court, because not only have I never seen a divorcing couple, either party, leave a court battle and, and say to themselves, or to anyone else for that matter, I'm glad I did that because everyone ends up losing. Because people going into that always have this fantasy like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crush my ex-husband because I'm going to crush my ex-wife because everyone will clearly see that this person is a demon just as the way I feel in my heart this person is. But no one will see that. Because it's just simply not true because you're in you're super biased. Now, there are the occasional case in which a spouse is empirically a horrible human being. But this is extremely rare and extremely difficult to demonstrate. So so that so anyway, you want to avoid the court because of that, but you also want to avoid the court because judges don't know what they're doing all the time. <laughs> I've been to family court, and I'm telling you, I've never been on the stand. I've always been a expert witness or some sort of support person. I've never really been in the in the midst of of the fighting. But when I watch family court, I frequently I say to myself, "My God, this judge has no idea what they're talking about." And how could they? Because they're one human being, and they can't possibly know everything. They can't possibly know all the research. They don't have the time to really investigate this. And and right away, we see that this judge has no idea what they're doing. To send, if you have a question about a five-year-old daughter's allegations or whether or not a five-year-old child has been abused, you don't send them to counseling. That's That's not the purpose of counseling. Counseling is not to determine the truth. It's not an investigation activity. Counselors are not trained in investigating. You have to send them to an evaluator, a specialist, often a psychologist, a doctoral level person who their 
sole job in life is to determine truth in matters of sexual abuse, victimization in young children. That's the other thing is you, you have to find someone who specializes in evaluating whether or not a child has been sexually abused. And it's a very delicate procedure because when we actually look at the history of therapy and counseling, there have been many, many famous cases actually in which therapists will unknowingly cause the child to believe that they have been abused when they have not, or they basically plant things in their head because the therapist has wishful thinking essentially, and they're on a witch hunt. And so they basically through investigative or, you know, inquiry and asking questions of the child, you basically like socialize the child to, to basically make up a story that they've been sexually abused. So, uh, Counts and and I tell my supervisees this all the time because we often get asked to do this sort of thing, and uh, we often are compelled to find out if you know because someone will come to us in the middle of one of these kinds of situations, and as a person you just want to know did this person get abused or not are they making it up are they not making it up because treatment depends on knowing somewhat knowing the answer to that question, and I'm here to tell you that. If there's any ambiguity, I mean, sometimes kids will just be like, yeah, I was sexually abused and my dad, you know, did this and this and this. And so and it seems pretty clear. Other times it's it's a lot harder to figure out. Anyway, so we have a judge ordering counseling for the do- for the daughter, not any not an evaluation from a specialist, but counseling, <laughs> which now if the daughter has been sexually abused, then. It's advisable that the daughter be connected with a therapist, but that is not the purpose of this. The judge doesn't know the answer to whether or not the daughter's been sexually abused, so the judge sends sends the daughter to counseling. Okay, so right now, so that's where we're beginning. All right, so the mother sought the assistance from a counselor because the judge said so, and the counselor had an intern working for him. So the mother went to an agency and and hires this male counselor and he has an intern working for him and the the supervisor counselor man he assigns this five-year-old child to the intern which is again another mistake on behalf of the people involved in this case now the intern she had been sexually abused by a family member when she was a child it, it was discovered later on or even during the proceedings but the intern uh, is open about having been sexually abused by a family member when she was a child. The intern would often talk about her abuse to the child as part of a quote-unquote relationship building process. Now, when I present this little detail to therapists, there's often a lot of gasps. They'll say, oh my God, the intern is talking about her own sexual abuse with a five-year-old child? That's not appropriate. And if you know me, I don't like the word appropriate. I like the word helpful. Uh, it's potentially helpful to do that. It, it, and it, it really just depends on what the intern was doing. When I read this, I, I, was, I was hoping that they would have given more detail because there's a huge spectrum between on one end, which is the light end, where an intern, the intern might have said to the five-year-old, you know, when I was young, when I was your age, my family, someone in my family hurt me, and I, I was really confused about that. They, they touched me in a place that I didn't want to be touched, and, and it made me really scared. And, and so I, I, when I finally told someone, it just felt better just to tell someone. Okay, so that's, shall we say, closer to the lighter disclosure side, which I'm guessing some some, at least some, if not many therapists would say, oh, okay, I could, I could understand that again, as a relationship building process. Now on the other end of the spectrum, which I'm guessing many of you had thought of when I talk about this with people, they often kind of go there where the, where the intern is sitting down describing in full detail, everything that happened to her as a child as being, you know, sexually abused by her mother or father or uncle or aunt or whoever. And, we just don't know. We just don't know the answer to that question. But this is a detail. All right. So as part of the treatment, 
between the, you know, the intern was giving to the five-year-old. The supervising counselor, the man, would observe the sessions and videotape the sessions. So they say observe, so one-way mirror, I'm guessing, or maybe in the room, but also the sessions were videotaped and he would, he would review those videotapes. I suspect that it's all part of the training procedure for the intern. Many interns are uh, videotaped, and that's a way that supervisors get a chance to see exactly what their interns are doing, and they can review the video later. Okay. So the counselor, or the, you know, the supervisor, he observes a, a number of sessions, something like five sessions or something, he observes these sessions and or the videotape. I'm not clear if he just observed the video or whatever, but he, he saw the sessions and the supervisor, you know, calls the mother into the office because the mother presumably drops off the five-year-old. And so he says, you know, come on into the office. And the supervisor says that he could quote, he could conclusively state that the child had been sexually abused by her half-brother. This is the 17-year-old son that the father accused of sexually abusing the five-year-old daughter. Okay, so again, quote, could conclusively state that the child had been sexually abused by her half-brother. It was his opinion that the child, uh, trigger warning for everybody, you should, if you are triggered by minor discussions of sexual assault, you should be forewarned. Okay, it was his opinion, the supervisor, counselor's opinion, that the child had been orally raped, had been anally raped, and vaginally raped by her half-brother. So not only just sexually abused, but the, the supervisor provided extremely specific information regarding what had uh, happened to the five-year-old that he was 100% convinced of. After a few more sessions with the child, the counselor and his intern were even more convinced that the child was being molested, sexually abused, raped by her half-brother, and they reiterated their opinions to the mother. So not only was the supervisor convinced, but so was the intern. And they, they both tell the mother, look, this five-year-old is definitely being, being molested by the 17-year-old stepson. However, the mother was unconvinced. The mother is like, okay, I have this counselor and this intern telling me that my 17-year-old son has been brutally raping my five-year-old daughter, and they're super convinced, but I am not convinced of that. So, And she has legal reason to not be convinced as well. So she asked, guess what for? What did she ask for? She was like, please give me blank. Well, you guessed it. She asked for the video recordings of the sessions because all the sessions are videotaped. And she's like, give me the videotapes and I will look at this myself because, you know, you're convinced by what you saw in the session. And so I want to see what you're convinced by. And as a little, so let's just take a pause here and just like take a guess as to what the counselor did, what the supervisor did, because it's important that we all understand, if you're a clinician, that when a patient asks for their health information, their patient health information, by law and ethical code, you have to hand that over. Now, you don't have to do it right away. You can say, give me a couple of weeks to compile or to make a copy, or you're going to have to pay a fee because, you know, to provide you with a VHS tape, <laughs> I don't know, whatever he would give out, but... Uh, you know, you can say, give me a couple of weeks and pay a fee, but you can't say no. But as with all of these, these malpractice cases, whenever the counselor gets, because right now the counselor supervisor is sitting here thinking, okay, I've really extended myself and I've really said, yes, I am a hundred percent sure that this little girl is being sexually abused by your, your, the older boy. And the mother's like, I don't believe you. And the counselor's like, well, you're just going to have to believe me because I'm the expert. And then the mother says, how about you hand over the videotapes? 
So the counselor's at this Y in the road. And at least the counselor thinks he's in a Y in the road, when in reality, there is no choice here. He has to hand them over. But he thinks he's at a Y in the road. And what so many of these cases involve is the wrong choice, which is I'm going to present a barrier. I'm going to try to, you know, outmaneuver this woman. And so he says, no, I'm not handing you the videotapes. That's just not going to happen. So let's just imagine what the mother is thinking right now. I have this counselor whom I don't like. I have this intern who says that she's been sexually abused and she's, they've had, you know, six, seven, eight sessions or something with my daughter and they've come up with this crazy, really detailed allegation. And I asked for the videotapes. I mean, presumably if they really are confident in their conclusion that the child has been abused, then surely they want, they want me to see the videotapes, wouldn't they? Because if, if the daughter is like, providing, you know, full stories of sexual abuse involving her older brother, and it's clear that something is happening, then wouldn't the videotapes be handed over readily? Wouldn't they actually say, here, you got to look at these tapes, man, because something clearly is happening with this older brother, and you've got you've to do something to protect this, you know, little girl. But instead... The counselor says no. And you just have to ask yourself why. They didn't give this information, but you have to ask yourself why. Why would you say no to that? Now, maybe there were some circumstances, like the counselor was, I don't know, worried about the intern, or I don't know. But it, the other sort of stupid thing here is, and we'll see later on, that the counselor seems to have no clue what he's getting into. He has taken on a case that, Presumably, he knows is involved in the court in a custody hearing, which which by its nature as a clinician, you should only take on if you're absolutely sure you want it and you're ready for all the consequences of doing so. You should only do that, you know, if you're if you're ready to take on that on that risk, which it's very risky because because this is the sort of situation in which you get sued regardless of what you do. But you also need to be competent in dealing with courts. It's a very complicated thing. And uh, it seemed, and again, we'll get into it. He's, it's clear he was not. But there he is just just saying, you know, he walks right into this, makes a very firm allegation. And what does he think is going to happen? Like the mother's going to go, huh, okay, well, I'll just take your word for it. And the the, you know, what do you think is going to happen? The judge is going to be, okay, well, I'll just take your word for it. They're going to want some justification for such a strong allegation like that. But in the counseling world, there's these pockets or, I don't know, there's a culture sometimes of people just thinking that they're like, I don't know, it's hard to exactly describe, but it's sort of a God complex. Counselors are often at the top of their own little pyramid. I mean, I'm one of those people. And without consultation, without checks and balances, you can start to really believe your own bullshit. And this is where a lot of counselors and clinicians get into trouble. And again, I'm speculating, but I uh, I think that's what's going on here in this case. But again, speculation. Okay, so the counselor says, me and my my intern have been working with your five-year-old daughter. Lots of abuse. Mother says, uh, I don't think so. And the counselor says, well, you're going to just going to take my word for it. And the mother says, okay, uh, well, I don't take your word for it and give me the, give me the video. The counselor says, uh, no, I'm not going to give you the video. So then the mother terminates the counseling. She says, uh, okay, you're fired because this is bullshit. And then the counselor, uh, for unknown reason, goes to the father who is who the counselor has not met with goes to the father and tells the father that yes indeed the stepson is molesting the daughter so the father's like yes allegation confirmed everything is going my way i'm going to crush my ex-wife in court this is going very well for me a few weeks later the counselor the supervisor received a letter from the mother's attorney Big surprise, right? The mother's attorney says, you send a letter 
to that supervisor requesting copies of the child's therapy health record and the videotaped therapy sessions. A big surprise, right? <laughs> Additionally, the letter from the lawyer warned the counselor not to destroy any of the requested information and threatened that a subpoena would be issued if the information was not provided. So it says, give me the, the, the case file and the video and do not destroy the video because that will be a problem for you. And if you don't provide it to me, I will, I will get the judge to force you to hand it over. The counselor then called the court and told the judge that the daughter was being molested by the older son. So the, the counselor is really just doubling down here. The counselor tells the mother, the mother terminates, the counselor is like, okay, well, I'm going to tell the father. So he tells the father, and then, and then, and then the counselor's like, and I'm going to tell the judge too. And it's just like, the more this counselor just keeps digging himself into his own grave. Okay. So then naturally the court says, all right, well, uh, give me a report. You can't just call me on the phone and tell me this. You, you got to give me a, a report. So I want a report of the child's therapy and the events leading up to the child's withdrawal from counseling. So I want a full report of what's going on because from the mother, I'm getting the, these, you know, notes from the mother's attorney saying that something's wrong here. So, you know, give me a full report. You're, you're making some really strong allegations. And if true, there's some strong consequences and I need a strong report from you, you quack. Okay, so the counselor completed a report. The counselor writes up a report of the events in therapy and sent it to the court with a letter detailing his opinion, again, tripling, quadrupling down, that the five-year-old has absolutely been brutally molested over the years by the older son. The letter from the counselor to the judge, stated that the, that the counselor and his intern had observed three of the child's therapy sessions, and he had no doubt, the counselor had no doubt, that her half-brother had been sexually molesting her uh, for some time. Okay. The counselor's letter also recommended that the child get a soft tissue exam from a pediatrician, as the counselor was convinced that the child had been orally, vaginally, and anally penetrated. So, again, if it is a actual true allegation that the older uh, child is sexually abusing the younger child, then getting a soft tissue exam, or a, you know, you're trying to you're doing an exam on someone in terms of their um, soft tissues to see if there's damage or the signs of, of being raped. And again, as we, when, as I go forward in this case, which I'm guessing, you know, where it's headed. Um, wow. You know, uh, it's, you better be damn sure that there's a justification for such an exam because it's, as you can imagine, at least a little bit traumatic for someone to go through, if not extremely traumatic. Okay. So the judge is like, whoa, I have a professional here that is telling me some very strong things. And the, the mother is saying no, but of course she's motivated to say that. So the judge reacts to protect the daughter. And an emergency hearing was, was held. And at that hearing, the judge ordered that the children, both of them, be held under adult supervision at all times. And a report was being made to Child Protective Services or CPS, who investigated the counselor's claim. So the CPS is called at this point. Now, why the counselor didn't call CPS is a bit of a, a question mark here, and but maybe he did. It just wasn't talked about. But the judge is like, uh, Child Protective Services, you need to look into this. Okay, so CPS investigates the claim that the 17-year-old boy has been raping the 5-year-old girl, and they determine, guess what, that there was no basis to support his conclusions of sexual abuse. So CPS investigates and they're like, um, nope, I don't see any, any evidence that the five-year-old has been abused. Now CPS 
is, you know, presumably more competent at evaluating these sorts of things because they're professionals. They do this all the time. This is their bread and butter. They do, you know, they have special investigators that investigate whether or not children have been abused and they know how to answer. They know how to ask questions and they, they, they've had lots of experience and training. Now is, is CPS flawless? Absolutely not. CPS has, uh, if you've looked into it, there are problems. They're good people, most of them. They're trying their best, and they're underfunded often. But but in general, we can say CPS probably knows what they're doing in general. And they're like, nope, no evidence of sexual abuse. Okay. Additionally, the judge ordered that the videotapes be reviewed by a separate certified pediatric counselor uh, or child counselor that specializes in play therapy. So the judge is like, okay. Get those videotapes, get a certified play therapist to look at these, and I want them to evaluate whether or not this child has been sexually abused. This other counselor, when reviewing this certified, this outside second opinion counselor, reviewed the videotapes, every minute of it, and, and said, quote, in a report, there was not one iota of evidence of abuse. Not one iota of evidence of abuse. Now, if you're a second opinion counselor and you've been hired by the court and you go on record and say such a thing, it, it, it says something. Now, if the second opinion counselor said something like, well, there seems to be some peripheral evidence that maybe something's happening, so it's kind of hard to say. Because um, if there were, re- so the thing is, is, is we have CPS looks into it. They're like, nope, no evidence of sexual abuse. And then you have this secondary counselor look into it. And they're like, nope, not one iota of evidence. And then you just have to wonder what the hell was this supervising counselor thinking and this intern? I mean, the intern I let off the hook because the intern's a trainee. And so the intern you know, is, is learning and doesn't know things, but the supervising, the supervising counselor upon, you know, watching these sessions again, no iota of evidence and yet sees evidence of sexual abuse. This is again, just the hubris of some counselors, these little mini gods at the top of their own little pyramids, believing that they can do anything they want. And they're in love with their own, um, abilities, which are much more limited than they think they are. Now, again, total speculation. Maybe the guy's a super nice guy, but uh, maybe he's just either he's either he's super nice and just dumb (laughs) or he is not super nice. And there's actually something kind of wrong with him. And, you know, he's smart. So I don't know. Something's wrong with him, though, because when you look at this case now, he's not here to defend himself. So whatever. But anyway. Okay. Additionally, the reviewing counselor stated that any counselor who was making this determination should have consulted with another professional and obtained a second opinion. So the counselor's like, okay, not only do I not see any iota of evidence of abuse, but I'm also saying, look, this counselor should have asked for another opinion because to make such a claim uh, should always require consultation. Okay. As a result of the investigations of CPS and this other counselor, the judge found that there was no evidence of abuse. The judge is like, okay, I'm convinced there's no abuse happening with this, with this five-year-old. The mother then filed a lawsuit against the counselor. He, she also filed a lawsuit against his counseling business and she filed a lawsuit against the intern as she is entitled to. The mother alleged that the actions of the counselor and his intern caused, quote, great bodily injury, emotional distress, humiliation, mental anguish, embarrassment, damage to familial relationships, loss of income, and other injuries, unquote. It all makes sense to me, except for the first one, great bodily injury. Maybe that's the, maybe actually, wow, if, if that, uh, maybe the mother actually followed through with the soft tissue exam. Maybe that's why they 
mentioned that. So, yeah. So if that happened, then the mother's like, I'm suing you for making my daughter go through an invasive procedure that's traumatic, you know, the bodily injury, the emotional distress to, to my daughter and me and my 17-year-old son. My son is, think about his suffering, the humiliation my son's been through, the humiliation we've all been through, the mental anguish that we've all been through, the embarrassment, the damage to our relationships because the 17-year-old is like, I don't know what his disposition is, but you know now everyone hates each other. Loss of income because when you, this is another reason why you want to avoid the court because when you get wrapped up in a situation like this and you get this back and forth, it becomes a full-time job. It's so stressful. You're, you just think, oh, I'll just let my lawyer do it. No, you have to read lots of letters, lots of emails, review lots of documents. Yet there's lots of meetings and, and lots of you know back and forth, and lots of blah, blah, blah. It becomes a full-time job. So that's what the mother is suing this counselor over. She claimed that for over a year, she couldn't work, she couldn't sleep, and she became sick with worry, which I totally understand. I mean, imagine if you have kids and some counselor comes along and says that one of your children has been brutally raping the other child and just how distressing that would be. Not only just what if it's true, but even if it's not true, what is that allegation and that charge going to do to my family? It's just going to rip us apart. It's just, you know, I I went from, you know, divorcing my husband and, and we would share custody to the possibility that my older boy has been brutally raping my five-year-old girl and my 17-year-old son's going to go to jail and my five-year-old daughter is going to be damaged for the rest of her life and I'm going to be ashamed for letting it happen. I mean, just just the stupidity of this counseling supervisor and just how stupid. <laughs> it's like, again, if, if the other counselor watched the videotapes and was like, you know what, there's a little bit of evidence, but I, I don't really... I don't agree with the finding. I could see how the counselor could have come to that conclusion, but but it's not my conclusion. That's not what he said. What he said was, there's not one iota of evidence of sexual abuse. And to go from not one iota to a full account of what had happened, I mean, Jiminy Crickets, okay. So let us review what did the counselor do wrong? He's being sued. What did he do wrong? Has he, yeah, the questions you want to ask yourself is, has he harmed anyone? Has he violated any standard of care? Has he violated any ethical codes? Are there, are there any legal violations? Has he acted outside of his competence? These are all questions we want to ask. Okay. So let's answer them. Has he harmed anyone? Yes, he's harmed the five-year-old by at least a soft tissue exam. And by, uh, I mean, it's unknown how much the five-year-old knew about any of this stuff. But he harmed the mother for sure. And he harmed the 17-year-old son for sure. Did he violate any standard of care? Well, he didn't release the videotapes. So that's outside the standard of care. Um, some would say that it's outside the standard of care to give this sort of case to an intern. And I would agree with that. Some would say you shouldn't give a case like this to someone who's been sexually abused before, which I don't agree with, which I'll get into more in a second. I mean, it's hard to say, well, I'll talk about that more later. Um, it was, uh, against the standard of care, not to consult with another professional, about whether or not this, you know, whether or not his conclusions are are accurate or not, or based on anything. So, a number of violations of standard of care, and he violated ethical codes. Yeah, I mean, you're not, uh, you didn't hand over the video ta- the videotapes right away. You acted outside your competence. Clearly, you allowed an intern to stretch herself way beyond her abilities. 
and um, I don't know, just various other ethical things in terms of harming people and blah, blah, blah. Any legal violations? Eh, not exactly sure if a legal violation occurred. Okay, so resolution. What happened? What did the judge and uh, what did the judge find? What did the judge decide? Okay. So initially, the counselor who's being sued, he did not feel as though he violated the standard of care. He's like, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know why this woman's suing me. I just, you know, I just was doing my job and I thought she had been sexually abused. So I provided my opinion. Big fucking deal. Get off my back. Okay, so that's his initial um, stance. I embellished a little bit, as you can tell, but uh, that's his stance. However, as he heard the expert opinions presented in court during deposition, so, so I just love this visual. Okay, so the counselor's like, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know, I don't know what the deal here is. And then during the malpractice suit deposition, this isn't the actual hearing, this is during deposition, the, the counselors listening to the experts give their position. And the experts are like, well, it's my opinion that there's not one iota and he should have, he should have asked another counselor. CPS people come in and say, nope, we investigated. And so as the counselor is listening to these expert opinions presented in the deposition, the counselor starts to agree with the experts on the other side of the court. And then he verbally tells everyone during in the deposition, he says that he probably did not violate this. He, oh, no, sorry. He probably did violate the standard of care. So he's like, yep, uh, after listening to the, uh, you know, the mother's experts, I think I'm, I think she's right. I think I did screw up here. And he start, and he said that his accusations of sexual abuse should have been further investigated through counseling by, and by a secondary counselor. Okay, so let's get into the specifics in terms of what the experts were saying regarding the, what the counselor was doing. The expert said the supervising counselor was not using play therapy correctly. Okay, now I don't have any thoughts on that because I don't have access to the video and there's no data about that. But the experts were saying, no, he's not using play therapy correctly. I would, uh, uh, I'm speculating that at the very least, if I saw it, I would say, well, you're not using play therapy correctly because play therapy is not designed to evaluate this sort of thing. Uh, play therapy is for therapy. It's not for discovering whether or not someone's been sexually abused. So at the very least, I would say that. The experts also said that the counselor did not appear to be certified in play therapy, and neither was she certified in play therapy. And again, this is where you have a problem with the courts because the courts you know, really heard this and said, oh yeah, he's not certified in play therapy. How is he doing play therapy or supervising play therapy when he's not certified in play therapy? The and people out there will absolutely disagree with me on this, but some others will agree with me that you do not have to be certified in play therapy to do play therapy, and you don't have to be certified in play therapy to supervise play therapy. Now, you certified play therapists out there will absolutely hate me for saying that, but I'm here to tell you that I have never taken a play therapy course, I've never been trained in play, I'm obviously not certified in play therapy. But play therapy is a part of, of being a therapist for children. If you are a marriage and family therapist like me, and uh, you've worked with kids, which almost, I would say, 99.9% .9 of marriage and family therapists for at least a portion of their career have worked with kids, then you will learn how to do play therapy just by the nature of, of working with kids. And are there more advanced skills in play therapy that one could learn? Absolutely. You know, you could learn skills in, in any, in talk therapy. So to say that this guy is not certified in play therapy means that 
he was acting unethically or out of the standard of care is just not true in my in my book. It's the same with sex therapy or something like that. There's there's a lot of things that are quote unquote certified. Like you can become a certified like also you can become a certified sex therapist, but you don't have to be certified as a sex therapist to do sex therapy. Like for me, I have done sex therapy with people and I'm not a certified sex therapist. There's a lot of different kinds of things you can become certified in that doesn't mean that if you're not certified in it, you can't do it. Now, if you're not a licensed clinician, then you can't practice, right? So I'm a licensed clinician. And two, if you're not competent in an area, then you can't practice in that area. And uh, play therapy is, is a competence. You know, it's something you learn. I was supervised by someone that was very experienced working with kids and, and knew how to do play therapy. I, I took a number of courses on how to work with kids and how to work with families and read a lot of material and learned how to become, how, how to do play, play therapy. But um, uh, so, therefore, I was competent in play therapy, just not certified in play therapy. And I don't like that there's often this element in these, in these cases in which someone is slammed for not being certified in something, even though they're licensed to, and maybe even competent. So there's really no, there's really, we don't know if this guy is incompetent in play therapy. We just don't know that. Now, having said that, there's some pretty good evidence that he might've been, but anyway. The experts also said that the supervising counselor should have never allowed an intern uh, to work with this family, especially because she had a, a little history of being sexually abused as a child. Again, I don't agree with these experts because just because you've been sexually abused as a child absolutely does not mean that you can't treat people with sexual abuse. If this intern has been through a lot of therapy and has given a lot of thought and uh, has recovered, so to speak, and knows when those kinds of issues come up for her, then that will not interfere with her work as, as a therapist working with kids who have been sexually abused. In fact, some of the best people who work with sexual abuse have been sexually abused themselves. Plus, a, a a large percentage of women have been sexually abused. And if you say, if you've been sexually abused, you can't work with, with kids who have been sexually abused, then you're, and the vast majority of therapists are women, and the vast, vast majority of therapists who work with kids are women, then you're basically eliminating a pretty sizable chunk of the profession from working with those people. And in my profession, Nobody would say, or very few people would say, that just because you've been sexually abused as a child means that you can't work with kids who've been sexually abused. That's a ridiculous statement. But again, one that a judge would say, that I've heard sort of, you know, judges say things along those lines. And attorneys will say stuff like that. But they don't know what they're talking about. And this is why you always want to avoid, avoid the court, because they can say stuff like this and feel like they know what they're talking about when they don't know what they're talking about. And so, now, having said that, there is a chance and potential evidence that the intern had not worked through her issues and was clearly on a witch hunt for abuse when, to, and saw it where it didn't exist. So uh, we don't have a lot of data there, but it's, it seems very possible. And so I wouldn't say that uh, as an expert, if I were called it in this case, I wouldn't say that because she's been sexually abused, she shouldn't be treating uh, this sort of child and shouldn't have been assigned to this child. What I would have said is the supervising counselor did not do his due diligence to make sure that the intern had recovered enough to be able to handle this kind of case. So that's, that's what I would have said. All right. Additionally, it could be argued from the experts that the intern would tend to see evidence of sexual abuse, even when there was no sexual abuse history. Okay, so I already said that. All right. The defense attorney, so the counseling supervisor's uh, lawyer, was worried that the 
that his client, the counselor, would make a bad impression on the jury because during the deposition, he verbally agreed with the opposing side's experts <laughs> that he was practicing outside the standard of care and that his conclusions were wrong. So his attorney is sitting there in the deposition and, you know, the attorney's all ready to fight. And then the, you know, other side presents their witnesses and their experts. And then the attorney's client, the supervising counselor says, huh, verbally it tells everyone, I think I agree with, with the opposing side experts. So the lawyer is like, um, we probably shouldn't go to trial now that you've said that, because I don't think this is going to go very well for you. So let, let's maybe try to settle. So they settled without going to trial. And I'll, and I'll tell you how much money that was involved. Okay, so, so the findings were, the judge found that the supervising counselor failed to practice within the boundaries of his competence. And we can say that, you know, that is, there's a lot of evidence of that. The judge found that the counseling supervisor failed to monitor services provided by the intern. He's like, you didn't, he or she, the judge said, you didn't uh, monitor this intern enough. The judge found that the counseling supervisor used inaccurate and deceptive certifications to diagnose the patient. I don't agree with this one. It makes no sense. Inaccurate or deceptive. I mean, unless there's other data that we're not given here, the fact that he's not certified as a play therapist doesn't mean he can't, uh, uh, you know, provide therapy to a five-year-old. Now, what what he absolutely could have been slammed for is he doesn't. He's not certified, or he has no training in evaluating whether or not a child has been sexually abused or not. There's not a certification for that, as far as I know. But that's absolutely something you could do. Because again, play therapy, if you're certified as a play therapist, that has nothing to do with the ability of detecting whether or not someone's been sexually abused. Play therapy is therapy. It's not assessment or forensic uh, psychology services. Okay. The judge found that the counselor failed to make a correct diagnosis, which was true. The judge found that the counselor failed to refer to a second opinion, which is true. Something that wasn't mentioned that I feel should have been mentioned is that the counselor failed to hand over the video recordings when the mother asked for them. That, in my opinion, is, is uh, wrong. Okay. So they settled out of court and guess how much the insurance had to pay out? Okay, so just think about it. How much was this counselor sued for? Well, the indemnity payment was $600,000 given to the mother. $600,000. And the legal costs, how much do you think it cost for the attorneys? It was... $31,000. So not that, not that much. 31000 I mean, it's a lot of money, but uh, compared to the $600,000, um, not that much. All right. So conclusion, do not operate outside of your competence. One. Two, when it comes to custody battles, unless you're competent in that area and you're willing to take on the tremendous risks of being sued, then you should avoid cases like this and refer them to someone who knows what they're doing. Three, when you have an intern, you should only give them cases they're capable of, of, of doing. Four, you, when a patient asks for their patient health information, you hand it over. Five, when you go on the record and say something in a report, you better have strong evidence to back that up because there is a chance that someone is going to make you justify that. And I have seen, I have seen so many people fail to do this. I've seen so many colleagues just say, and just hearing about other therapists that, you know, they'll, they'll just go on record and say something like, yeah, the father is a terrible father because blah, blah, blah. Or the the child should live with the father and not the mother because 
the mother is cold or doesn't, you know, or the, the child doesn't want to live with the mother. Therefore the child shouldn't have to live with the mother there. I have seen so many of these, these like dumb little reports written by people in my field, people like me who think that they're doing the right thing and they want to help. But the fact of the matter is one, they're not competent. I mean, perhaps they are competent, but in, in the cases I'm talking about, they're not. One, they're not competent in determining such a complicated forensic question. And they, you know, aren't trained in that and haven't done tests. But two, a lot of the times they make these, these determinations without even talking to all the family members. So they might only talk. So say them, you know, they're, they're, they have a mother and a child and they never meet the father and then and there's a custody battle and the mother hates the father and feeds the counselor with all this negative information about the father. And the mother's like, I need you to write a report saying that my daughter should not live with the father because he is an evil person. You can agree with me on that. Right. And the therapist will be absolutely, I will write that report tomorrow and send it to the court. And the, the funny thing is, is a lot of times these therapists don't get in trouble when they're just opening themselves up to a tremendous lawsuit like the one we're, talk, like the one we're, we're reviewing here. There are specialists that do this sort of thing. There are forensic psychologists who are specialists in determining whether or not someone should live with one parent or another. If you remember the episode years ago that I did with Dr. James Manley. He is a psychologist and a, and he does assessments, meaning that, you know, he investigates things and writes reports. And he was called to investigate the fitness of, oh man, what was his name? Josh Powell. Josh Powell was his name. So if you remember the episode in which I interviewed Dr. James Manley about, he, so he was hired by the state so it's a famous case in which this guy from Utah, I think, had killed his wife, but no one could prove it. And then, so he was given, uh, you know, sort of temporary custody of his kids with supervision. And the state hired my colleague to to test whether or not Josh Powell was fit to actually parent these kids because the state was wondering if... Josh Powell actually murdered his. So, okay, <laughs> it's a long story, but so the state wanted to know, they have this guy and they're like, we're pretty sure this guy killed his wife and buried her in the wilderness, but we have no, but we don't have any proof of that. So, and we have these two children that this guy is taking care of. So we really want to make sure that this guy isn't going to kill his kids or harm his kids. So they hired James Manley to uh, evaluate this guy's personality and his parenting fitness. And so he's not his therapist. He's just evaluating. That's another thing you always have to consider is if you're someone's therapist or you're someone's counselor, by definition, you cannot assess them from an unbiased opinion. It's a dual relationship. If you are tr if you are treating them, presumably you like them and you're trying to help them, and therefore you cannot provide an an objective, so to speak, opinion about anything because you are too bonded. It's be like your mother comes to you to you know hire you to investigate something. It's like you're you're too biased, and so Dr. James Manley was not the therapist of Josh Powell, he was just hired to evaluate. And he met with Josh Powell many times. He met with the kids many times. He did several assessments. He really thought about Josh Powell's personality. And he had determined that Josh Powell, there was something actually concerning about his personality. And when that report came out, it's sort of a long story, but Essentially, what happened was Josh Powell, because of James Manley's report was coming out that might actually not be good for Josh Powell, he, he started to plan a murder-suicide, in which and he followed through on it, in which he killed his two sons and then killed himself and then blew up the house um, in a big gasoline fire. So it's, uh, I, I say this story because 
there are experts that evaluate the uh, fitness of a parent and whether or not bad things are happening to kids. And so just because you're a therapist and you care about such matters does not mean that you are competent in it. Now, having said all that, some of you therapists out there, some of you counselors are competent in doing that. You don't have to get a psychologist. You can get special training or special supervision or special whatever, and you can become competent in that sort of thing. But when when you're competent in it, you know it. It's not just something like you just sort of think, well, yeah, I'm probably competent in that. No, you've you've made an effort to become an expert in that. I There's a counselor I know who's, for instance, he's an expert in providing sexual abuse uh, for, or he's, he treats sexually aggressive youth and he's, you know, he specializes in that. He's had a lot of training and he's an expert in that. So, so if you want to become an expert in that, you can, but, but uh, if you're not, then you're not. Okay. Okay. Well, that's just me soapboxing. Now in super conclusion, what I will say is I am guilty of all of these things, not, you know, in, in the degree that this guy is, but throughout my 20 years as being a therapist, there have been times in my early career where I had that hubris, where I was thinking, yes, I am competent to evaluate such things. I did get wrapped up counter-transference wise. I wanted to protect a child from what I thought was an evil parent. I did get involved in these custody battles and would, write reports against other parents. Um, I'm not quite sure about that last detail, but I remember being pulled into those situations. And as I got into my career more and read more of these cases, I realized, oh my God, I need to avoid this situation. Plus, I'm not competent. Because in my early career, I didn't even know that these other sorts of professionals even existed because they didn't work at my agency. I just, I only knew about the professionals that were in front of me. (laughs) And it was later in my career that I realized, Oh, there's this whole other profession of assessment. And there's this whole other profession of people that are super trained to do this sort of thing. And incidentally, in my education, I am trained to do, I took a, I have a specialization in forensic psychology, forensic assessment that I don't actually and I don't, I don't do that job because uh, it doesn't seem appealing to me. But it was fascinating to me when I was in grad school and I, I learned all about it, which, again, gives me this pretty clear picture about what people are competent in and what they're not. But anyway, so I'm not saying that I'm above anybody. I'm just saying that we all need to do what we can to be clear about this sort of stuff, mainly for client um, care, but also just for your own uh, career. This could ruin your career, right? Um, and uh, you don't want this that to happen. Plus, whenever I have supervisees that even come within, you know, a 10-foot pole of these kinds of cases, uh, I would say 50% of the time, something wonky will happen. And the 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 counselor will, the therapist will be sucked into the court proceeding even though they don't want to be, and then the therapist is lying awake at night sweating because they don't know what's going to happen and they're worried that they're going to get in trouble for something and that kind of stuff and so you you really there's just so many reasons to avoid cases like this and to give them to people who are specialized in it anyway. All right, well, that does it for this patron-only episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you haven't already, you can become a member of the new Psychology in Seattle fans page group situation. Um, so we, there's the regular Facebook page. That's the just the page that I admin. But there's also a new fan page, just Psychology in Seattle fans, that's, that's admined by famous patron Lennon. And you can post anything you want and you can, you know, I want it to be, uh, for the fans, I'm thinking about not even looking at the page (laughs) so that you can complain about me as much as you want and just, just really interact. Cause I know a lot of you fans are already interacting, but you also have a lot of really similar kinds of interests and stuff. And so I just thought, um, it'd be, and, and actually patrons have been like, Hey, we should have a group just for ourselves. And I was like, I don't even know what that is, but I had a little bit of time looked into it and actually, uh, set it up and handed it over to famous patron Linden. So uh, do that. 
if you want to. But if you don't, no biggie. Also, many of you patrons took the survey I sent out. I think I'm going to send a follow-up survey, um, and maybe that'll actually come out before this episode. But um, the survey, I'm just really interested in what you guys want from the because there's just so many different options for me, and I just want to uh, give the listeners what they want. Early results say that the Star Wars episodes are mixed, <laughs> as expected. Some people super dig the Star Wars episodes. Some people are indifferent and some people hate the Star Wars episodes, which, you know, I just have to say, you know, tough shit every, every once, every once in a while I'll do a Star Wars episode, but I imagine it's not going to happen for a while because, uh, I don't know. I just imagine it's not going to happen for a while, but anyway, all right, well, take care of yourself because you deserve it and only operate within your competence because you just don't want to go to court. (laughs) Thank you.